All right, everyone. Welcome to the fourth episode of our Therapy Insights Resource Roadmap Show. Today, we're going to talk about some of our resources inside of our Access Pass in different ways. So if you're already uh, subscribed to Access Pass and you have the printables feature included, you have instant access to everything we're talking about today. And then if you aren't a member, you can easily go to our website at therapyinsights.com and sign up today. If you're listening to this episode on a podcast or watching on YouTube and you want official CEU credit, head to our website at therapyinsights.com and click on CEUs. You'll find a form to fill out um, for the Pediatric SLP Resource Roadmap episode number four to your certificate of completion. So I'm your host, Bailey, and we have our writers, Sasanya and Heidi, with us. Welcome. And uh, Megan is behind the scenes pulling up our resources to display. So I need to verbalize our disclosures because we're being um, paid by Therapy Insights and we're talking about um, the products today on our show. So we have an exciting collection of resources this month. Again, lots of variety. Um, we have everything from evaluations to joint attention to delayed speech. So let's dive right in. So first we have um, dynamic case history questionnaire for speech and language evaluations. And Heidi, you wrote this resource. Can you tell us more about it? Yeah. So um, this one, I've worked in a variety of settings and used a variety of case histories I've paid for and ones that I found free online. Um, and I didn't, we didn't have one in our resource library. So I was like, let's make one and kind of phrasing certain questions differently, I think is a little bit helpful to get, I have found to get the actual information from families or caregivers. Sometimes you think you're asking a question that's going to give you what you want and it wasn't quite. So some of these I've just rephrased to either be more caregiver forward where they're going to understand what we're asking versus it being too speech jargony, you know, only another SLP knows what we're asking. Um, so the, I mean, most of it is just the same basic questions. I mean, you always want the chronological age, developmental age, if that's important, depending on the age of the child. Um, it's always a nice way to ask who is here today. I've made the mistake putting my foot in my mouth not realizing it's somebody's aunt or grandma, you know, so this is just a nice way early on in the, <laughs> the questionnaire to clear that up. Um, and some information on their language, something I always find interesting is where does the child spend the majority of their days? That way they can share, are they at a school or daycare, spending time with others? Um, this one at the front, I put this on the first page because I think this really gives insight for family, for you as the provider working with the families. It says, describe a positive experience with a medical or therapy provider, and then maybe describe a negative one. So that's a nice way for them to, you know, you don't want them to tell you a 10 minute story, but you might want to hear that they really struggle. Maybe the evaluation, they are really nervous and have a hard time or, they've had neg a bunch of negative experiences before, so you wanna be tuned into that. Um, the rest of these kind of just go through the typical um, things that you're looking for. There's the their language history, feeding history, other developmental milestones they need to hit. And there's a chart, something I really liked and added, let's see, I'm not sure how it would print off, but it's the page where the bottom half is a little chart and it just gives you them a way to answer some general questions a little bit more specifically um, without having to give you a story. They're just kind of listing how often something's happened or when they're doing it. 
Um, I mean, this is, let's see, it's six pages, so it's still kind of long. Something I have found that could be helpful is if you pieced a part of this out and also gave that to the, you know, if you work in a place where there's a reception area or a check-in person, you could have them do that, you know, hand that to the family when they get here. If there's just certain ones you could check off. So maybe you could pick a page that that would be helpful. Um, but what I hoped to gain from this, um, changing some of the wording and sort of what they're talking about and the order it comes in is to see if you can get the family comfortable from the beginning and then you can get more useful information as they are going through the rest of it. I feel like that's, I don't know for you guys, that's sometimes a challenge for me. We get to the end and they're telling me everything I want to know and I'm like, gosh, how could we have gotten to this point? sooner. And then as you can see on the slide here, if you're listening only, we did um, make a Spanish version. So if you are bilingual or working in that population, um, that we got it translated and hopefully that can help as well. Um, you know, even if you did have a translator coming in and helping you during your session, they could use that as well to kind of make sure we're asking the same question. Sometimes there can be that mismatch of what you're asking in English directly translated is not always correct. So we tried to be thoughtful in how this um, kind of came together. So yeah, I'm excited to be able to use it and sort of keep tweaking it with any <laughs> resource you, you make it your own, but tried to put the building blocks for a little bit more of a dynamic way to get information from our families. Yeah, this is great, Heidi. And I should have, before I pass it off to you, you know, describe what the resources oh, yeah. is. But yeah, um, I know I'm always looking for new ways to just like make evaluations more efficient. And we'll talk more about that later with our research article uh, for this month. But yeah, I mean, I, and I always struggled at the, the clinic I worked at most recently. Um, we wouldn't get a lot of information um, up front. You know, it just, you kind of go in blind sometimes, which maybe that's common at most clinics, I'm, I'm not really sure, but um, I like that this is kind of, like you said, the building blocks, you can kind of like um, add more to it and kind of make it your own or kind of individualize it and just making the evaluation just more efficient because you're trying to like maximize your time and use your times wisely. So that's always challenging. I love that you offer this in Spanish as well. Yeah, that was sort of a, I'm trying to be better. It's I don't speak Spanish at all. I mean, I put together pieces, but it, I'm trying to sort of shift my mindset to always, and we work with quite a lot of where I work now, those families. And I, you once you see the barriers, it becomes really obvious. And you're like, this is something we can just do better at. And maybe um, I can't do it, but it's good to advocate for, you know, through our, through Therapy Insights, we're able to make sure this is translated. I didn't personally do it, obviously, but you know, how, how, what other things could be helpful to have for um, those. And Spanish is obviously just a subset, but starting somewhere can be helpful, I think, hopefully. Definitely. All right, let's move on to our next resource. So Tasanya, you wrote this. Um, it's called Tips to Help Your Child with Joint Attention. It's a one page, I believe one page resource um, with just chock full of information. So tell us more about this piece. So joint attention is a skill that we as communicators have to have for a lifetime. So when we're communicating with other people, we need to be able to understand what they're referring to, 
um, and many times this, this um, includes um, or it requires that we are looking at an object or item together. And many of the children that we work with have difficulty with this, whether it's because they have a diagnosis of autism or if they just have language delays or um, difficulty with attention concentration. This is a... Um, this is a piece that is helpful for children who experience difficulties like this. So um, I just begin with explaining what the terminology is. Uh, sometimes parents may not understand what it, what it is. So you can use this in those instances. Let's say if you have a little one that you're working with who seems to be ignoring what um, you're saying when you're communicating with them or their parents say, that they feel like their child is always ignoring them or they are not understanding what I'm saying or they're not looking at me when I'm talking, they're not looking towards what I'm talking at um, or about. This is a good activity or a good resource for that. Um, and um, I would use this, uh, I would give it to parents or I would provide it in the schools as well. Um, and you can also use it within your sessions because there is uh, activity that I included at the end of it with some tips on how you can use this in the home setting or how you can use it in other social communication uh, based settings with your little ones. Such a such a crucial pre-linguistic skill that I feel like, you know, we do have to provide a lot of education on for most families. And, you know, even like as a new parent myself, like I didn't realize how, how young, you know, I, I forgot how young um, infants develop joint attention. Um, you, when you get a, you know, a child with language delays or, you know, autism or whatever it may be, I just feel like this is such a crucial thing to focus on and just something we have to kind of keep like reminding parents of and, you know, giving them activities to do at home to um, enhance that skill. Um, yeah, this is great information. Yeah, I agree. I like how you break it down because I think I use the word or phrase joint attention very freely when I'm like talking to families or interacting with other therapists. And I'm like, I don't know that everyone understands it. And sometimes then mm -hmm. I'm kind of stumbling to be like, well, what, how would I just, it's like they, we're paying attention to the same thing. It's not necessarily you all the time. It's just that they can focus on different activities. Um, so I like that you give a lot of like uh daily activities that kids and families are already engaging in. So it's like, okay, how can I do it in that setting? I don't actually need to necessarily have like a joint, there's not a joint attention toy that you use just to do this. It's sort of something like you're saying too, Bailey, it happens from such a young age. Um, and then I, I've, in my own personal research, sometimes when I'm coming across things, these are one of the biggest markers for some of these developmental delays is when these skills are missing early on. So it's nice to have this reminder of like, uh, you know, taking a walk or playing in the kitchen or at the doctor's office, like what is your, what is your child paying attention to? And this kind of would help families, I think, really understand, oh, they're, they're doing that. I just need to support it better. Or no, they really, you know, they're doing something totally different the whole time. So I will definitely be using this, even in, especially in the hospital, <laughs> too. Sometimes that one's a common one. I think it helps parents also to know yeah. that there's so many, there's so many situations that they can take advantage of to work on joint attention. I mean, just like 
taking a walk in the neighborhood. There's so much that you can do with that. And, and this resource provides you with some examples of how to do so. I was just going to say that to Sonia. It doesn't have to be like a specific toy with this like nice little setup, you know, in the playroom. It can be like in any environment, literally. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think too, when you're in the age of screen time, this is a helpful one to use and be like, it has to be an object or something you're doing. There is an action to this. You should encourage that. Not, I think I have a lot of family. It's like, well, Coco Mullen sings about, you know, all the things and you're like, yeah, but they can't keep up because there's nobody there sharing the experience with them talking about it. So um, yeah. that's another <laughs> piece that, of it that <laughs> is helpful. That whole idea of like, and this is a whole other conversation, but like the like co-viewing with the screen, screen time is kind of like what you're talking about there. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Great it's point. so funny. Well, it's so funny, Heidi, because I've done some home therapy sessions and I walk in and the family has like Coco Melon on and I'm there like, oh yeah, look at the little monkey with the blue pants on and look at the car. It's going so fast. Let's look together. And the parents will be like, oh, he knows it. He knows it already. It's his favorite show. And it goes into, yeah, I'm just trying to, it's an example of, you know, like trying to explain to them what joint attention is and showing them how they can take opportunities to work on it. So I'm like, yeah, you know, we're just working on our ability to attend to the same thing at the same time, you know? So it's funny, so funny that you brought up Coco Melon because. <laughs> My daughter just discovered it and I get, I had never watched it before. And I understand because it's definitely those video series. Cause there's now this other one she has found and it's very easy for to lull families into thinking you're doing something like, like join attention is with Coco Melon or the character. And it's like, that's really, it's not interactive because you're not naming, you know, this resource talks about naming the objects they're seeing and seeing them for a long enough period of, you point that out, like they have to see them for more than like half a second to mm -hmm. make the connection at, at their little brains. They can't jump you know, sure, I could learn a lot, I guess, from Coco Melon if it was on something I didn't know about, but I'm an adult learner, not a developing mind. So <laughs> this would be a great, maybe this is one I'll just give out to everybody. <laughs> just like, hey, by the way. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. All right, let's move on to our next resource. All right, awesome. So we have a four page resource. This is a summer sorting and categorizing activity. And Heidi, you wrote this. So we have beautiful pictures, real pictures um, with different categories of summer themed items, foods, et cetera, activities. Um, so Heidi, tell us more about this piece. Um, so this one is, you know, it's finally summer, at least where I live. It feels like summer now. So I knew that one of the strengths of a lot of our resources are or an issue in our field is a lot of the the pictures are old or stale and not that interesting. So I really just knew our team could pull together a pretty neat resource. And then I was like, categories are, you know, that's what the theme of this particular activity is that I've given ideas on how to use the cards. But these um, cards, you would cut them up and laminate or whatever you wanted to do with them. And they could be used for all kinds of things. You know, you could do narrative storytelling as well with them. Um, and 
even just conversation pieces or, you know, tell me about what you, you know, what did you do this summer? Um, but I, the, there are three main categories that they're set up in. So summer foods, places, and activities. Um, and so they, you can also ask them to, you know, you can have them just sort them. That might be a lot of stimuli for certain kids. So you could break it down and just have foods or just have the activities or the places and then sort them by color or people. You know, there's a lot of different ways you could sort them. The other thing, you know, again, how versatile they are. I'm sure you could find some articulation activities with certain ones. Like I was saying, the storytelling or relating, um, themselves to something else, having those kind of back and forth conversations, or you can even have them make up their own stories. So again, the, the whole goal is to sort between these three activities, but you, I think you might find that, and I do, I say, I point this out in the directions. I think kids might sort things differently than my adult brain would sort these. And so how do you ask them like, well, why did you put those things together? Or what makes those similar what what is the same thing and they could come up with something really original and say like that's all stuff i do with my grandparents or on, with my cousins um so definitely not looking at this as like a stagnant resource where it's like here's a box and everything has to only go in the ones i tell you it's sort of saying here's some really um realistic pictures and things you should encounter you know or know about and like let's talk about them i think um the other, I don't know if you guys too, things I run into with card, like activities like this, where there's just this card bank or picture bank is the assumption that kids have been to the beach or know what, like a couple of them, the pictures and the places they're at a fair or a carnival. So having that awareness as the therapist that you can't, you wouldn't want to look at this as like a right and wrong activity only. You always want to extend it and see what they're going to tell you because maybe they don't understand a picture or they have no idea what it is and that's why they put it there. And so how can you make those teaching moments as well and not get stuck in this sort of like rigid category <laughs> type of activity? So um, I will, these are super, again, they're really versatile and they're summer themed when I was an outpatient, I'm not currently an outpatient therapist, but when I was, that's what kind of got me through the year is like having themes and like, okay, this is one of the activities I'm going to use for all of my kids in some way during July, you know, I'll find a way to make it work for different goals. So um, that's kind of what I was hoping this resource could be for myself and others as well, sort of a starting point to have that it's so versatile and kind of open-ended. There's a lot of ways you could use it. And I try to give you some of those ideas, but I think others might even find more creative things to do with it. So. Yeah. I want to like really emphasize the versatility piece because I think like that's something that we, it's important to us when we make these resources, like we're all busy therapists, no matter what setting that we're in. And we're sometimes, I mean, at least I, struggle with like scrambling for last minute material. So I, if I buy something or I subscribe to something, I want to like, I want it to be a multiple use thing that I can, you know, use across clients. Um, like you said, with maybe articulation. Mm -hmm. um, and I also always like a good sorting activity. I just feel like a lot of the kiddos with language disorders, you know, that's an area that a lot of them struggle with. So it's nice to just be able to grab something like this and then use it in different ways. Um, yeah. And the images are beautiful too. 
Yeah, definitely. If you had a group, you could just give this activity to one of the kids to work on. You know, they could be on this side doing that while you're doing targeting a different skill with somebody else. But you could also come together and have like a conversation about the pictures or um, how people relate to them. Each child might have a different story or experience. So. I like the teachable moments totally. concept that you, you mentioned because it's so true. I can think about some clinical experiences I've had with children who were like, um, like the beach, what's the beach? Because they've just never been there. So it's a perfect, this is a good activity for teaching that as well. Um, but I would also use it in the whole, sticking to the whole concept of sorting. Um, so what are some of the foods that you would eat at the beach? What are some of the foods that you have eaten at the beach? What have you eaten? What do you eat during the 4th of July? What do you eat at a picnic? So I would like interchange these and use them with each other. This is a really good, it's a really good piece. I like it. Awesome. All right, let's move on to our next one. Okay, so this is a two-page resource. It's titled Delayed or Age Expected, When to Get Your Child Evaluated for Speech Services, something we all love to talk about. I feel like it's such an important parent education opportunity. Um, Desanya, you wrote this. Tell us more about this. Yeah, so I can't tell you how many times I've met families who either said they wished that they uh, either looked into uh, services earlier or they wish that they went with their gut feeling um, of pursuing services, but their provider, their uh, physician told them, you know, to give it more time. Or they compared one child to their sibling and they were like, well, you know, well, maybe, you know, she was a little bit more advanced than her um, and things of this nature. So I was really thinking about these types of situations when creating this and um what I did with it was just provide kind of like a, a kind of like a little definition of what the terms are that we as SLPs know and that we we use routinely, but that uh, families may not be too familiar with. Um, this way, they understand that there's a whole realm of things that um, SLPs would be able to work with their children with if they did. Um, get evaluated and and possibly receive services. So um, it is a checklist of sorts. And what parents can do with this is um, they can go through it. And if there's concerns or if there's not, they just want to do it. They can go through the list and basically just check off why for yes and for no, um, whether or not it's a skill or behavior that they're seeing their child exhibit. And if not, there's several things you can do. Um, they're not a, you're not evaluating your child with this. It's just a little parent screener, I guess you can call it. And um, if you uh, go through the list and you realize that there are several of these um, skills that your child is not exhibiting, you can go to your provider and you can express concerns and say, you know, this is what I noticed. It's just an, uh, another tool to help support any concerns that you may be seeing as a caregiver, as a parent, as a teacher, possibly as a, a, a clinician. Maybe a physical therapist might use it, an OT might use it, SLPs may use it. But it's just a guide 
on some of the skills that are expected within certain age ranges. And um, I would even, bold, I'd be, maybe people might say this is kind of bold of me, but I would provide it to, if I had any colleagues that were pediatricians or um, because many times what happens is I've met many children who are like, well, my pediatrician said, just wait, you know, or uh, my pediatrician told me not to worry about it. I can always, by the time he gets to school age, he'll be fine. So this is something that I would give, I would so I would recommend sharing with uh, other disciplines as well who are involved in making decisions that could possibly help with referring your child or, or uh, your student or your client or patient to receiving services. Yeah, I like just the, it's so easy to use, like a checklist is always super nice. You know, if a parent is filling this out, they don't have to like write you know, sentences out like from like an open-ended question. I just, I like how you can quickly check off um, yes or no. And it's laid out nicely and it has the ages very nicely organized. Yeah, I was, my second thought after like, oh, this is really great for parents too, is um, when I'm training graduate students, it's like, this would be nice to just give them at the beginning of the semester and be like, look at this, you know, or if I don't work in the edge, you know, in higher ed, but, you know, maybe a great tool if you're a clinical supervisor for graduate students, just to get, you know, you can't, it takes a couple years and or months to get yourself up and running with like the Rossetti or the standard assessments that you would use for language. And so this is a nice one that maybe gives some road, like roadblocks or sorry, road signs to say like, this is a kid that's actually doing okay. They're doing most of the comprehension things. They're missing the expressive. Um, so I think it's got, like you're saying, almost so many uses for so many different people, um, even just beyond it's kind of geared towards caregivers and parents in this setting. But I think there's so many ways you could use it because it, that if you've never had a kid or you're new to the field, it can feel overwhelming because you are going to get asked right away, like in, in an evaluative setting, like, is my kid delayed? Or like, what do you think? Should I have come or should I be here? You know, and it's like, okay, at least I can quickly start memorizing some of these um, things they should be doing so I can more appropriately respond and then do the full assessment at a later point. Or like you're, you know, kind of the flip side, when a person doesn't qualify for services, you can kind of say, well, this, they're doing all the things, you know, like, I understand you're worried about this one, but they're doing all these other ones and ones ahead of them. So I will definitely be, <laughs> when this comes in the mail, I'll be <laughs> using it a lot, I think, because it will help many different people that I interface with. So yeah. And I also like to Sonia, how you on the first page, like, again, you kind of laid out the areas of language and then the areas of speech, like kind of differentiating those two. Cause I know that can be confusing for parents, of course, like it kind of all blends together. Um, but yeah, I like how you laid that out and kind of like made it just easy, like easily digestible for anyone reading this. Yeah. I think sometimes, um, sometimes because people think, uh, they think of speech and they think of just expressive language. They don't, they don't think about the other uh, areas that we cover. And I think it's just, it's just good, just, just good basic knowledge for uh, parents who may either be uh, just 
getting into some type of contact with speech pathology or who may eventually have to have more interactions with, with SLPs for their little ones. So I just wanted to give them an idea of, of, you know, of what these terms mean and what they are. I think too, it'd be super useful for families that have multiple kids and say it's their second child that they're starting to feel that they're delayed and then you end up getting to know them or the situation. And actually the first child maybe was a little ahead on their milestones. And so the gap feel, I have that conversation quite frequently, like the gap feels really big, but what you're describing to me is that your two-year-old is actually already doing like two and a half, three month, three-year-old things. And your child here is, is doing six month things. They're just, it's okay. You know? So I think giving that reassurance and um, having just the, the easy to understand age, you know, you mark every three months and then it gets more as they get older on this um, resource. So I think that I ended up, I don't know why that just feels like something I've been doing a lot lately is talking with parents about how their kids are different from each other and that that's okay. Or when is it not okay? You know, when is it a delay? Not just actually on time. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. All right, let's move on to the next one. Oh, it is time for the research article snapshot. So this snapshot, it relates to everything we're talking about. It is um, about the article titled Early Identification of Children at Risk of Communication Disorders, Introducing a Novel Battery of Dynamic Assessments for Infants. This is new research written this year. And Heidi, it kind of relates to your um, the first piece we talked about. So I got to be honest, like I hadn't really heard the term dynamic assessment, really. Um, I don't know if I'm just out of the loop. Um, I know it's not a new thing. It's been studied in the past, um, but I thought this was a super interesting article. I'm going to read the takeaways from it um, that was in the snapshot written by um, Kate Hawkins, one of our writers. So it says that early identification and intervention for children with communication disorders can greatly support the development of communication skills and prevent possible negative outcomes related to poor speech and language ability, something we all know and see often. So dynamic assessment tasks can help evaluate young children in the areas of receptive vocabulary, motor imitation, joint attention, turn-taking, social requests, and more. So a lot of that pre-linguistic sort of um, development. So in contrast to static formal testing, DA or a dynamic assessment is more focused on the process of learning. In this study, researchers utilize a specific cueing hierarchy that provided children with increasingly explicit support to complete each task, allowing partial credit with additional cueing. Results show that results show preliminary favor for early DA use in very young children to improve detection of communication disorders and improve access to early intervention services. Love that. Um, lastly, clinicians should consider dynamic assessment as a reliable and user-friendly screening tool for identifying infants at risk. So like, again, you know, getting kids in earlier, we all know the earlier, the better usually. Um, and I just found this to be really interesting. Um, and I, I talking about standardized assessment, I don't know what you, Tasanya and Heidi use, but, um, I feel like there aren't a ton of options out there for early language assessment. Um, I know like the Rossetti, the real PLS, which we all have our own opinions about, um, and they're not perfect and um, they can be lacking or frustrating. Um, and I like how the authors talked about just the benefits of dynamic assessment. Um, it seems to be a little bit more individualized if I'm understanding it correctly, um, since it's about the child learning and they're more supported during the assessment because of the cueing that they are given. Um, 
and I was, as I was reading this, I was wondering like, you know, some of the, some of these tasks they talked about, like, are we kind of naturally assessing those anyway, when we do a clinical observation during like a, a just a normal evaluation? Um, we've talked about before how we can't really always complete a formal um, standardized assessment if they're like compliance issues, fatigue, a number of reasons, um, especially with very young children or babies. Um, and then I also really liked how the authors mentioned um, a recommendation for further research to focus on this in other languages. I think that's super important for accessibility. So I like this article a lot. Yeah, I definitely want to pull it up and like read the whole thing and kind of tease out parts to talk to some of the developmental um, pediatricians that I work with because they're always asking for like a standardized assessment score. Like they want to do their research, which needs these really specific set of tests, but like the ones you listed, Bailey, they're great. I mean, they serve a purpose. And, but I would say, you know, years into practice now, I'm using them more in a dynamic way, but that's from years of experience, not because that's how the test is set up. So like, how could we, hopefully these types of assessments can be utilized more so that younger early clinicians earlier in their career can start assessing this way instead of like, cause I can't, you know, when you're watching a clinician that's just checking boxes and like watching, and it's like, this kid is in a doctor's office type of setting. They have, they're freaking out. It's nap time or it's snack time. Like it's not a, it doesn't feel accurate to only go by a checklist. So especially for, I mean, if any, you know, infants are like volatile, <laughs> like you can't make them do anything at any certain time. So I like that they're finally trying to kind of coalesce around some research about, well, what should we do? Or what could we make the new gold standard versus kind of trying to make the old things work for still work in today's society. So. Yeah. I love to see how uh, graduate programs implement this into, into training interns, mm -hmm. because there's a lot of that checklist approach to teaching. And I, and I understand like maybe it might be a little easier for getting them to understand foundations of assessment, but um, this is so important. And it goes into that whole idea of not every child be fitting this cookie mold. And, you know, not just because of like culture and race and just because they're all individuals and they're all, you know, diverse and they're aware of, of learning and growing. So this is so, so important. So I'd like to see over the next I have to say 10 years to be to be realistic how graduate programs implement this into their academic into how they train uh, students in their clinical uh, portion of their learning I agree <laughs> yeah I mean I certainly my experience was you know you have your yourself five and then you you complete it and you got to complete it you got to find a way and that's there's no flexibility and that just not realistic. So yeah, that's a great point. I also think like a barrier, I'll be injured. That's why I want to sit and read the article like more in depth by myself is what are we talking about? These assessments are because if you ask a bunch of clinicians of all new, new or experienced clinicians, a major barrier is like the cost of some of these assessments. Like we can't get the new stuff that's maybe better because it costs 
$2,000 and my, you know, director isn't going to approve that. And so, you know, is, I'm curious if I read more into this article, will it talk about like, actually, we don't need to be doing like those types of things only, or these are accessible. Or I think there's like, I don't know, maybe you guys have seen it like a little bit of movement towards trying to make things, um, accessible in our field from researchers, like in the feeding world, there's some more, I don't want to call them free because that makes it sound like they're freebies, but it's like if you engage with the person who created the assessment, send them an email or set up a time to talk, they're willing to share these types of assessments they're working on and with you and talk and coach you through them. And then you're able to implement them with your coworkers if you're on a team. Uh, so I'm hoping like you're saying to Sonia in the next... <laughs> 10 years, maybe we move to like, okay, you can maybe do a standardized assessment that, you know, is from a box that the toys are from the box and the responses have to be in this setting. But um, I'm hoping that there's more things like what this article is talking about, where we're assessing the child naturally and it's accessible to clinicians. And that can be the new norm, like through graduate programs as well, that's that are the training ground for the next generation. That's it. An excellent point you guys make. Start there, you know, with training. All right, let's move on. I think we have, ooh, Heidi, you wrote this one. So this one is titled Convergent and Divergent Thinking, Task Examples and Activities. I love this topic. I feel like I am learning so much about this for these shows. So this is a seven-page resource, yes. Um, there, it looks like there's some different like puzzle coloring pages, some activities, some charts. So tell us more about this, Heidi. Yeah, so sort of going on the theme, if you've listened to our other shows every, every month I've been creating, it seems like there's a need for these more cognitive type of tasks that as a therapist, it's hard to find resources or it's hard to understand what those tasks are. So the first page of this talks, okay, what is a convergent task? So that's a closed set of answers or responses. I tried to keep it simple, the wording, like, because that works for my brain to say, okay, that's something where there's only one way to be doing it. And then these divergent tasks are the open-ended tasks that have a variety of responses or correct answers or solutions. And you definitely, if you go back in our library, there's how do you discover if a child is good or this is a struggle area for them between those convergent and divergent tasks. And so there it's mostly to target cognition. And this is sort of geared towards like a TBI population, but you definitely could use it in a variety of ways, depending on your where you work. And then there's a list, just a written list of activity ideas, um, like listing items and which one doesn't belong or identifying like more set categories that would be like animals or food you know the summer sorting one there's some fluidity to that but there's certain things that are definitely one category or another um anything that's like a multiple choice question true false fill in the blank um so again you wouldn't have to necessarily recreate the wheel you could find that activity in some other capacity maybe it's on a, another website or it's on you know in the textbook you have from that the kids using for their science or math class and puzzles, facts and opinions, describing without naming. That's a fun kind of game you can play of like, here, let's, and you could use those cards that we had earlier for that, like pull a card out and you describe this thing or activity to me without using the word. Um, and then a fun one I found when I was looking for more ideas is like advertisements. I was like print advertisement. It seems so far 
in the past now, but that would be a fun thing to pull something up from, you know, you could look Google an image of an advertisement from even probably the early 2000s and like talk about what were they advertising um, or what did they want to sell you sequencing activities. And then the one that we have the most, um, we have three color by number activities that our graphic designer made that are one's easy, one's medium difficulty, and one's a little bit harder. So again, those might be great homework activities. Or again, if you're working in a group or you need some down, you know, you're the patient you're working with can't take 60 minutes straight of like direct one-on-one -on -one like drill activities. It's like, okay, let's take five minutes and you can do this color by number. Um, so those are the convergent ones. The divergent tasks are again, those open-ended things like planning a vacation or listing items in a, in a category. So that's where you've identified the category, but they're filling it in. Um, then open-ended prompts. I mean, I think being creative, I wa I was watching um, one of our CEUs for the adult therapist. I was, it was about how to be creative as an adult therapist. And I was like, sometimes I need that reminder as a pediatric therapist, how to just be a little more creative and see where kids will lead us versus me always feeling like I've got to take them down the road of the activities all the time. Um, telling open-ended stories, playing. I mean, playing is a divergent task where the child can make up their own um, narrative about what's going on. And, you know, filling out a planning tool together. Again, we have samples of these. So the three samples we have are, one of them is a travel itinerary. So it's just a, a cute little, it's got a couple sections where it's like, what would, where do you want to go? You know, what, what would you do on the different days? What would you have to pack? Or what are the other pieces to planning a trip? You know, I think that you could also double that as like an executive functioning activity, you know, like if you actually had a vacation you were planning, but sometimes I find these types of activities help us get to know kids better as well. Cause we don't ask them those questions all the time. Like, where would you go if you could go anywhere? And then like, where could that lead us in other activities that might help find motivation for them and buy into therapy? If they're really like, my dream is to go to the moon. It's like, all right, well, what would you pack? You know, and <laughs> kind of work through that activity. Um, there's a little weekly meal planner here. So obviously that might be for some of the older kids, but maybe they'll get a deeper appreciation as well for like their mom or dad, whoever cooks at their family, you know, whoever is in charge of that, of how could I help or engage in that? And here's how to think through that activity um, and be creative. Or maybe, you know, even I've actually had a run lately of older picky eaters that I have gotten that there's a variety of reasons. So I'm planning to use this was some of them kind of saying like, well, if you could plan a meal, you know, your week out in food, what are things you would want to try or planning ahead? And then a little story map that it's just pretty, it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty in how it looks and it's very straightforward, just has, you know, the characters, the plot and things like that. So again, these are things you can just use as activities to work with together or any of these would work as little homework tasks and Again, they're super versatile. They're not just a divergent or convergent thinking task. There's a lot of directions you could take them within the session. So this is so fun, Heidi. Oh my gosh. I was like, I'm going to do color by numbers <laughs> just to relax. <laughs> oh, I love it. Kids love it too. They're yeah. so functional. I love it. This is great. And I like I the, the last mm -hmm. three pages. It's really functional. Yeah, very different ideas with like the travel. The travel itinerary, itinerary is thing. so good. And I'm the thinking story about reminds me of like 
Mm-hmm. I was just going to say the story map reminds me of like um, using like assistive technology with kids in school, like um, graphic organizers and kind of getting their thoughts organized and on paper. I think that's so important to work on. Yeah, this is great. Well, y'all, let's move on to the case study just for sake of time. Um, so the case study, I'm going to read it aloud and we can talk about it. So we have a 10-year-old male who has a diagnosis of autism, attention deficit disorder, and anxiety disorder. He has been receiving school and clinic-based therapy. His parents have noticed an increase in his stress level and reluctance to attend therapy in the past month. I personally have had a lot of these cases. Um, they feel that this may be due to his therapist focusing on goals such as increasing eye contact and maintaining conversation with X number of exchanges with a non-preferred topic. So maybe not the best goals. His parents are interested in working with a neurodiversity affirming therapist, potentially in a group setting instead of individual therapy. So I have a little bit of like, well, an off the cuff question. So before we talk about resources, I know we have only a few minutes left. Um, so I'm seeing this like kind of movement on Instagram of therapists, maybe young therapists talking about how, um, it's okay to question your supervisor in the setting that you're working in. Um, I don't know what experiences you guys have, um, but I think there have been times in my clinical experience where I kind of just um, was using old outdated goals, such as these, you know, eye contact, I'm gonna do this many conversational exchanges, um, just a lot of like rigid goals, I guess. And I look back and I'm regretful that I, you know, um, if I've potentially caused stress in some of the individuals that I worked with, especially, you know, the older kind of teenager um, or, or this age too, middle school. Um, so I guess, you know, there were just times where I had supervisors at my clinic that just did the same thing over and over and nothing was ever really like updated or thought about, like, if, if, is this really working for this child? Is this really the best way to approach this case? Um, are these the best goals for them? And now, of course, we know, as we talked about before, making a goal for eye contact is just completely, it should just be obsolete. It shouldn't even be a thing anymore. So have y'all had experiences with that where you maybe wanted to question a supervisor and you didn't or challenge a supervisor? Um, I did. Can you hear me? Okay. Um, I did. I, um, so I don't have an, I don't have an issue with questioning as long as it's done professionally, because I feel like it's a part of your learning and it's just a matter of when you do it and how you do it. So I wouldn't necessarily question them while I'm with the patient or client, but I have, I can think about something that pertains to voice that was very repetitive, the same task over and over and, um, you know, after doing it for like five weeks and not seeing any progress, I did question it, um, you know, and I don't think that all clinical supervisors are open to it. And I think it's a part of like the school that you're from and generational variations to how you approach learning too. But um, I personally, if I've ever had a question about goals that were being done, I've always asked. It's just, it's just how I asked it or when I asked. That's just my experience. I think you're right. I mean, it's, I see it. I'm not, I'm not seeing that trend necessarily on 
the Instagram, the social media accounts I'm following, but I see it in my work. Like there, there doesn't seem to be a good way right now to have those conversations because you're up against maybe the younger being trained, the training therapists are kind of like trying to come up with new ideas, but instead they're, they're not having that lens of, well, the person that might be have worked in the field for 20 years, they've been doing that for 20 years. So there's got to be some tact in how you approach that with them versus just being like, that's wrong. Like, how could they be doing that? You kind of have, you're not, in my opinion, in professional light work life, I haven't made a lot of progress if I come at it that way. Like, why are we doing this? Like, this is obscene. We're not neurodiverse here. And it's like, yes, that is very true. And it is so insightful of you to see that. But the way you're bringing it up to these, the higher up therapists or your supervisors is not going to make the message land the right way. So it's, I feel like our field's in a rock in a hard place. Like there's a lot of people wanting to do these things and agreeing with, you know, changing the narrative, but also the way in which maybe they're going about trying to do that is, is a struggle or is rubbing people the wrong way and not making them want to be a neurodiverse therapist. It's kind of like, have you explained it to them? Have you asked what the point of the eye contact goal is or provided a different example of a goal that might be targeting a kind of similar activity? Or are you just sort of writing them off as an old therapist? Like that's not gonna, I've seen that go real poorly in the past couple of years. So um, not sure the solution, but uh, I agree. Yeah. 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 With all the different personalities and experiences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting kind of sidebar. Um, but so we all pulled resources from our library. Um, let's go to the first resource um, and they just relate to this case study. So we like to do the case study just because it allows us to talk about some other resources in our library. And it gives us a way to talk about like a potential clinical scenario that we all might encounter at some point. Um, so I chose this one. Um, this is a five page, sort of a packet. Um, it's emotional vocabulary expansion activities. And there are five different activities. Um, and we talked about this one episode, just the importance of emotional vocabulary. And just, I feel like, like I've said this sentence before, like, I feel like it's our job to give um, the individuals that we work with, you know, even just labels of emotions, you know, just talking about that and like helping them have a wider vocabulary of, you know, how to identify their emotion and then what word they could use to describe how they're feeling, just helping with general communication. So I like this resource a lot because, um, it has just some really nicely laid off activities. Um, and it gives you some target words, which is really nice. So angry, happy, afraid, etc. And then just a few different activity ideas. You could easily use this um, with an individual or in a group. I think it would be, um, useful for both of those, um, sessions, but, yeah. And I like the, um, again, real images. There's a lot of opportunity to talk about what's going on in the pictures and definitely some different ways to use every activity. So let's move on. Um, I think to Sonia, you chose, um, a few. Yeah. So you're the first one you chose is management of caregiver burnout. If you want to talk about that two page resource. Um, yes. So, um, Management of caregiver burnout is important because as caregivers, whether you're working with little ones who are diagnosed with autism or other um, um, diagnoses, you as a caretaker need to be able to care for yourself so that you can give them the most optimal care that you can. 
um, in whatever way that you are. So this resource provides um, several ways that you can do so. It mentions mental, emotional well-being, physical well-being, and social well-being. And there's some tips and strategies that are offered for uh, caregivers uh, to do so. And as well as some strategies that can be used to help manage stress levels when caring for their children. These parents can uh, implement some of, they may want to consider implementing some of these strategies um, in taking care of their little one. Next. The next slide. Um, so this resource provides some routines that could be implemented into his academic day. Um, and even though this is specifically for children, or it's it's listed as being for children with uh, ADHD diagnosis, it can be also used for children who have uh, autism diagnosis. And it just mentions ways that uh, he would be able to, or that the parents would be able to identify his strengths and weaknesses, um, how they can help him to identify any challenges and create a plan to uh, work towards addressing them, building his self-esteem, taking breaks, creating incentives, and creating a bedtime routine, and ways in which um, management of nutrition can also help with, um, with, with making a more successful academic day. We can go on. So this one is for um, transition strategies to help support uh, children who are diagnosed with autism during outdoor social activities. And um, so for example, there's an activity that pertains to dining out in a restaurant, um, reading activities, uh, and as well as some fun activities like uh, making a date, the sequencing activities and transitional based um, tips that these parents can use to work with their child so that they can be the clinician outside of the therapy setting uh, in the interim as they're trying to uh, figure out if they, um, as they're trying to find the, uh, a more neurodiversifying therapist for their child. Next. And this is just some extracurricular activities that the parents can um, involve themselves in with their little one as well. Again, um, one of the biggest things that I like to stress for families is that intervention begins in the home and it continues in the home as well. So as they're working towards finding a skilled clinician to um, work with their child, these are some activities that they can do, that they can work with, um, that they can use to work with their, their uh, 10-year-old in the home setting or the social setting. I like, just to add, I like this, um, it's just a one-page resource and it has just like a bunch of different activities on it. And maybe like the child could even sit with the parent and like go through the list and like maybe something might spark their interest or something. And they can maybe like cross off things that don't interest them or check off or circle things that do interest them. And then kind of like, you know, eliminate and kind of decide what they, what they might like. Certainly. So, yeah, I love that, that resource. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did like a organizational development 
program a couple of weeks ago and it was sort of talking about like things that are in your control, like that these circles of influence. And so I like how the resources you pulled are all saying like, what's still in the parents' control? Maybe they cannot find a new therapist tomorrow. So what can they be doing? So I like that you pulled and highlighted those resources of, okay, these are things they can be doing, whether the therapist is it the right fit or not. And I think that's an important thing for us as, you know, if you've got a big caseload or you've got a disgruntled family or you cut your, someone's joining your caseload that had a bad experience, you can kind of um, give them this like, on, at the onset of therapy, be like, here's a bunch of different things you could work through so that you don't feel so lost. And we feel like we're making progress right away, even if we're still sorting some of these background items out. So definitely. All right, let's move on to um, Heidi, the resources that you chose for the case study. So this one is self-advocacy statement, social skills worksheet for neurodiverse teens. Um, tell us about this one. So we, this is a pretty new one to the library, but it kind of really speaks to this idea of how you could help this family either before or after or during this transition of saying, these are the kinds of things I would want to work on if that's going to align with what you're thinking about. So it's got a, it's a two page resource and it has who, what, when, where, why, and how questions and um, kind of identifying what is self-advocacy and how is that maybe what this child is needing versus maintaining conversation or eye contact. And then it's talking about different statement types you can teach them, like the need, I need statements, I can, I wish, it's hard for me statements, and I hope statements. So, and then it gives you a worksheet on the second page to kind of write all of those out. So I think that it's pretty interesting to, you know, or sorry, not interesting, it's overwhelming to think about how do I make this big shift as a clinician or how do I understand what this child might need or this family might need? So this is just a nice resource that anybody could use, you know, the family could even use it themselves uh, to figure out what do they want for their child other than to be frustrated by therapy. Um, so, yeah. And the second one I found, it was called, it's a one page, just sort of check, it's not a checklist, but a list of different activities called strategies for executive function dysfunction. So um, these, it lists things like reducing their distractions, writing a to-do list, one task at a time, working in small chunks, setting reminders, um, organization, little things like that. It has about 10 tips for you that Again, they're tips for things that the child could be working on that might be more functional for them, but also they're definitely realistic things that this child is probably struggling with if, if he's dealing with um, attention deficit and anxiety on top of an autism disorder. Like, okay, we can't fix all of those in one, act, one session a week, but here is a set of activities we could try to be implementing for him and whether that's the therapist working on it or family or teachers, there's a lot of people I think that could use this resource to kind of help this child and their family get, feel more in control of what's going on with therapy and making, hopefully make more meaningful, quicker progress. Awesome. Thank you all for sharing those and your thoughts, all the different perspectives. Um, so we can wrap it up. If anyone else has any more comments, um, let me know.
So we just want to thank everyone for listening in. Uh, we can't wait to gather next month for another Therapy Insights resource roadmap show. We want to thank all of you therapists, especially for making therapy informative, empowering, and person-centered. So until next time, thank you all.